Would you now please remain standing for the reading of God's word? All right, the reading today is from John 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will this ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Well, good morning, church, and happy new year. Uh, for those of you I didn't get to see this past week, it's great to be back with you all today and be sharing a message from God's word with you this morning. So as we continue in worship today, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we invite God to be working uh, through me and in all of our hearts and minds uh, to speak his word to us today. So would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for a new year and a new chance uh, to, to follow you and to worship you together with other believers. God, I pray that you speak through me this morning, uh, that may I speak your word effectively and clearly and accurately uh, to these people who are present today. And may all of us as well, uh, may you be, be working within us through your Holy Spirit to reveal who you are to each of us today. Uh, may we hear a word, especially for each of us this morning, and may we be changed as a result. Lord, it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, uh, to start off, I'd like to know, have you ever seen someone famous and you tried really, really hard to meet them? Now, when I was growing up in Rwanda, I got a chance to meet Kolo Toure. Now, that name might not mean much to many of you, but he's a big deal. 
He was Arsenal's starting center back in the 2004 season when Arsenal was invincible that year and, and didn't lose a single game over the course of the entire year. It was the only time in Premier League history that a team went undefeated throughout a whole season. And I got to meet this guy. So it was a really big deal. He came to Rwanda with his national soccer team, Ivory Coast, to play the Rwandese national soccer team. And me and my friends in high school, we got tickets to see the game. We were super excited for the chance to maybe meet some of our favorite players. And we were even more excited when we realized that Colo Toure wouldn't be playing on the field, but he would be seated in a section just one section over from ours. Because he was suspended from that game for taking steroids, uh, which she said, to be fair, to be fair to Colo, he said it was by accident. And also, I mean, how, you can't be invincible without a little help. So he was seated, VIP section, one section over from us. And the whole first half, my friends and I are like calling over to him, like, Colo, 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 trying to get him to come over to get a picture with him. And he's just ignoring us the whole first half, just like focused on the game, totally ignoring us until halftime. Because we realized that at halftime, he would probably go back to the field to talk to some of his teammates, kind of encourage them during the break. And to do that, he had to walk through our section <laughs> to the stairwell that took him back to the field. And so right as that halftime whistle went, my friends and I just sprinted over to that stairwell. We cut him off, we cornered him, <laughs> and we made this guy, this big dude, take a photo with us. Now, it's not one of my more prouder moments as a person, uh, now that I'm an adult, and I regret to tell you that I couldn't find the photo that was taken. I know, I'm really disappointed. I spent way too much time this week looking for this photo. Like, probably half the time prepping for the sermon was scouring through Facebook, messaging high school friends who I haven't talked to in 10 plus years, trying to track it down, but couldn't find it. And that's probably because whoever, whichever one of my friends took the photo and had it, when they became an adult, I'm sure they were so embarrassed at, at how awful the photo was and how awful we were to this person that they deleted it. Because if you were to see the photo, you would see me and all my little high school friends just crowded around this big center defender, all super pumped to get a picture with our, one of our favorite soccer players. And if you look at Colo's face, he is so peeved. He is so frustrated. He just has this big grimace on his face, just can't wait to get this over with, to get on with his life. So, uh, so that's probably why it was deleted by my friend. But we, we, wanted, you know, we wanted to see someone who we thought was super famous. We tried really hard to do it, but it didn't really go quite as we expected. And I, I sure hope I'm not the only person here with a story like that. At least, you know, I hope so. I'm not the only one who's done something crazy and a little um, not very polite out of the impulse to try and meet someone famous. But that's the energy, that's the feeling, that's, as the kids say this, these days, the vibe that's going on in this passage this morning. As Jesus has come to Jerusalem and lots of people are wanting to see someone that they think is famous in their eyes. So would you turn with me now to John chapter 12, verse 20. As we go through this passage, spending most of our time there in that chapter this morning. And as you're turning there in your Bibles or your phone, let me just give you a little background to our passage and our series today as well. So if you weren't here last week, we were in our second week in our new series, Jumping Back In to the Gospel of John. So if you were here last year, in, in the winter, spring, and summer, we went through the first half of John's gospel. And we saw through those stories, Jesus doing these miraculous signs and wonders and teaching these really controversial teachings about himself and who he is. And large crowds would gather around him to see the miracles, to hear his teaching. And finally, last week, we, we jumped back into the second half of John's gospel that covers Jesus' last week on earth. 
And so as he as, as Jesus returns to Jerusalem, as we l- read last week, crowds gather and gather around the streets to see this first century celebrity, to see this Jesus who they want to proclaim as king, who they want to be the person who's going to restore and redeem Israel, God's people, from the Roman oppressors who are in, in control and authority over them. And yet, we will see as we go through the second half of John's gospel, walking along with Jesus during his last week on earth through the eyes of his disciple John, we're going to see that by the end of the week, these same people that were proclaiming Jesus as their king on Palm Sunday are going to demand for him to be crucified just a few days later. And we've entitled this series, Behold Your King. Because as we're looking through John's eyes, seeing Jesus in his final week, we are beholding our king our King Jesus, but we're beholding our King who doesn't come to set up a rule in the way that we would expect, the way that we would want, but ultimately he has come to serve us by dying in our place. And that's, that's the King that we're seeing today. So as, as we go through um, this passage today, we're going we're to be seeing that we're gonna be beholding our King. So our story tar- start, starts off with some Greeks who are in Jerusalem for this Passover feast, likely because they're interested in maybe following the God of Israel and they're wanting to learn more. And so they're in Jerusalem and they're interested in seeing Jesus, who in their eyes is a celebrity. He's accumulated a huge following. But these Greeks, although they're in Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, they can only do that as outsiders because they're not members of the nation of Israel. You see, in the uh, temple in Jerusalem where they're going to worship, they had to remain in the outermost court of that temple. And archaeologists have found just recently that in between the outer court and the inner courts of, of the temple where Jews were allowed to enter, there was a sign, this is an inscription, uh, you probably can't read it, but, what, but trust me, it says, if you want to trust me, uh, let no foreigner enter within, anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. So as these Greeks are here, interested in the God of Israel, they are still kept on the outside by a death penalty. They can't enter in and worship the God of Israel unless they're willing to die in that very moment. And so while these Greeks are in Jerusalem, they hear about Jesus, this man who's teaching that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so they come to some of his disciples to get an audience with Jesus. Now I love how John includes the detail that they first go to Philip with a request, and then Philip's not sure what to do, so he goes and grabs Andrew, and then they go together to, to, talk, to, to talk about it with Jesus. And it makes me think, when I was a kid, and I like, had a question or a request from my parent, but I wasn't sure what, how they re- re- would respond, and so I'd grab one of their siblings to go along with me, and we'd go together to make this request, because we, we wanted to back each other up. So I, I kind of feel that's why um, Philip goes to Andrew before going to Jesus. But they come to Jesus and present this request, Asked, telling Jesus that there's these Greeks who are here and wanting to see him. And Jesus responds in a really surprising way. He starts to talk about his own death in this moment, which seems to totally dodge the question and totally ignore what the disciples were asking him. But the reason that Jesus responds this way in an unexpected way to this request is that Jesus sees these Greeks wanting to, wanting to see him and to know him as a sign that he is about to die. Because in order for the Greeks, and in order for actually all different kinds of people, and you and I today in this room right now, in order for us to see Jesus, he has to die. And so that's what I want to talk about today. That if you want to see Jesus, if you want to know who he is, know truly who Jesus is, if you want to see Jesus, 
You have to behold your crucified king. If you're here today, I I only assume and, and just believe that at some level, you want to see Jesus. You want to not just look at him from afar and glance at him, but you want to see Jesus. You want to know him. You want to know the peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose that comes from a life that is with him and a relationship with him. Even if you're here today and skeptical and wrestling with what you think and who you think Jesus is to you, the fact that you're here, I think, says that you find something compelling about Jesus. There's something about him that draws you in and you want to figure out for yourself who this man is. But Jesus tells us today through this passage that if you want to see him, you have to first see him as your crucified king. That in order for us to see him, he has to die for us. So as we go through this passage, we're going to consider these three ways that we see and behold Jesus as our crucified king. Three things that we must do. First, we must see that Jesus had to die for us. Then we're going to see that Jesus wanted to die. And then lastly, we're going to see how Jesus' death is an example for us to follow. So how Jesus had to die, how he wanted to die, and how his death is an example for us. So uh, picking up in verse uh, 23, we're going to see how Jesus had to die. And we're going to behold the scandal of your crucified king. Because the first thing you have to see that often gets lost on us as people, if we've been following Jesus a long time, or even just know a little bit about Christianity, I'm sure you know that Jesus died on the cross But the common knowledge of Jesus' death on the cross can sometimes cause that truth to grow grow numb to us. We can grow numb to that truth. And we don't see the real scandalous and offensive nature and surprising nature that Jesus' death for us has. So read with me in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, he responds this way, which seems surprising when you first read it, but he responds this way because he takes these Greeks wanting to see him as a sign that his time to die has come. Because people aren't able to see him and to know God fully through Jesus unless Jesus dies for them. That's why Jesus talks about being glorified. In John's gospel, when Jesus uses that word and talks about his glory or being glorified, what he's referring to is his death and resurrection. That his death and resurrection and dying for human beings and saving the world, Jesus brings glory to himself and to God in doing that in a strange way. And then he describes that further by using this image of a grain of wheat that it's, that, or the, the, um, a seed of, of, a, of a grain of wheat. That the seed remains by itself um, and doesn't uh, fall into the earth and die, it stays alone, and it, it doesn't fulfill its purpose as what a seed's supposed to do. But if the seed goes into the ground, and in doing so, stops being a seed, and so dies, it grows into a plant that bears much fruit. And Jesus likens himself to that seed, that if he doesn't die and he stays alive, sure, he might gain a big following for himself, and people might come to hear his teaching and listen to and see his miracles, but ultimately, he remains alone. He remains the only child of God, the only person in a right relationship with God and experiencing intimacy with God the Father. He will remain alone unless he dies. But in dying, he produces fruit, which is us as believers who join with him into God's family and experiencing a right relationship with God. And this 
if you really take time to, under, to, to seek to, 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 to reflect on what Jesus is saying here, it should offend you. It's offensive. Jesus is saying that based on our ability, we, that, that our ability to see Jesus, our ability to do the right things, our own efforts have nothing to contribute initially to our ability to see God, to see Jesus. That if we want to see him for who he is, if we want to know him rightly, it takes Jesus dying and his own initiative to restore that relationship with us. And this is so contrary and, and, and so offensive to how we typically think and how we're taught to live throughout our whole lives, whether you're religious or secular. Because in religious settings, we can kind of pick up that what we're supposed to do is, is by our own efforts, do the right things, try really hard to be the right kind of person. And if we just do that enough, then God is going to accept us. Or even in non-religious ways, we all have our own picture of what the good life is and supposed to be. And we think that it is by our own direct efforts on our own that we produce that. Whether that be working really, really hard to get into the right school or working hard to try and find that ideal perfect job with the right income that you want or finding the right uh, friend group or finding the right romantic partner or having the ideal family or even trying to have a great reputation before other people. We think that our idea of the good life, whatever that is for the, each of us, we achieve that directly by our own efforts if we work really hard. And so because it comes about by all our own direct efforts, we can feel proud of what we have in life and proud of what we've accomplished. And, it, and, and we can feel entitled to the things that we have. But Jesus comes in and turns that way of thinking up on its head and says, no, that's not how it works. The only way you can know me and through me know God and through that know the, kind, the real, true kind of good life, the life of, of fullness and abundance that I've come to give people is through my death. Because human beings are so broken and so lost and trapped by their own sin, there's no way by their own efforts that they can do that. It takes me dying. A grain of wheat left alone, if it doesn't die, will not bear much fruit. And Jesus in verse 31, he continues to say how his death, it condemns that me-centered, that self-centered way of thinking of the world. He says, now, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is saying, that in his death, his death is actually a judgment and a condemnation on that way of thinking, that natural way of moving through the world, which he identifies with the ruler of this world, which is the devil and the evil demonic spiritual forces that run this broken, fallen world we live in. He says his death condemns that way of thinking and brings judgment on it because it shows finally once and for all that a me-centered, self-centered way of life is ultimately fruitless and futile because he shows how an other-centered, how a self-denying, how, 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 how a way of life that ultimately costs him his very own life is actually the one that is fruitful and brings about the intended outcome that he wants to have. And we have to see this. If, we want, if you want to know who Jesus is and see him for who he is on Jesus' own terms, because you have to first see me and see the scandal and the offensiveness and the bold claim that I'm making that you can't know me and you can't know God by your own efforts. It takes me dying for you. The cross tells us that we are so broken that Jesus had to die. But also, the cross doesn't only say that. It doesn't only say that we're so broken that Jesus had to die to save us, but also it says that we are so precious that Jesus wanted to, 
save us. And so to behold our crucified king, to see Jesus rightly, we have to behold the beauty of the king crucified for you. That Jesus talks about how in, in verse 32, he describes how his death is not only pay, paying uh, the penalty for sin and saving people, but it's also something that's gonna draw people to himself. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus, when he is lifted up on the cross, when he dies, this excruciatingly painful death, he says somehow there's gonna be something so beautiful and not in the trite, like pretty sense, but something in a deep, profound, beautiful sense that is gonna draw and attract people to me through my death for them. And that is, some, that is a beauty and a truth that has drawn millions and billions of Christians throughout history to Jesus is how he died on the cross for us and in doing so showed how precious each and every one of us is in his sight. In the year 2000, uh, there was a gallery exhibit in the National Gallery in London and it was entitled Seeing Salvation. And it was images of Jesus throughout art history of, of him being crucified. Now, when they first announced this exhibit in the year 2000, a lot of art critics sneered and scoffed and said, this is a really strange choice of a theme for the National Gallery in London. Shouldn't we as a society, as a modern Western society, be far beyond looking at old paintings of torture? But, it, but contrary to what the critics thought, this was one of the most, ended up being one of the most popular exhibits in that museum's history. As droves and droves of people came to London, even in England, in a country that is even more post-Christian and secular than America, tons of people came out to see these images of Jesus being crucified. Because there is something so powerful and so beautiful still today, even, if, even for people who don't necessarily claim a Christian faith, of seeing the beauty that Jesus' crucifixion displays for us. And it's not enough to just be driven to Jesus by something else. But if you want to follow him and if you want to see him for who he truly is, you have to let yourself be drawn to him for his own sake and by his beauty. Jonathan Edwards, who unfortunately most people just know from his uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that we ought to read in school. But he was one of the most influential theologians in American church history. And though he was far from perfect and far from perfect in his theology, I really appreciate how most of his theology is based around this idea of God's beauty. He would say that the difference between a religious person and a Christian is that a religious person serves God instrumentally as a means to something else. So you serve God maybe to... Um, to alleviate your own feelings of guilt. You serve God to appease the people in your community, or, or maybe you, you serve God because you want to go to heaven one day when you die and see your loved ones, all good things in their own, but God is just a means to some other end. He's an instrument for you to use. But he said that con uh, in contrast to a religious person that serves God instrumentally, a Christian is someone who serves God aesthetically who serves God for his own sake because God is that beautiful and, he's and this person is drawn to God for his own beauty. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that when I'm lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to myself and you can't see Jesus clearly if you're being driven to him by something else. You have to let Jesus' beauty draw you to him. 
And if you're like me, and you kind of grew up in church or grew up in a religion, I, I, I can't remember a time in my own life where I wasn't seeking to follow Jesus and, do, and, and follow him and, and do his will. But I would say for most of my childhood, I wasn't being drawn to Jesus. I was being driven to Jesus by other things. It, it, it might have been the you know, unspoken expectations that my parents had um, or my community had that I felt and, and kind of and picked up that in order to be a good person, there were certain right things I had to do and certain right answers I needed to have. But it wasn't until as I grew up and faced challenges in my life and I, and I began to see that Jesus dying on the cross for me it's not just another fact that I need to confess, or it's not just the right Sunday school answer I need to be able to give people, but actually the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me in a personal way. And that I was, so, I was precious to him that he wanted to die to save me, and not based on what I could do on my own, but because of his initiative. And seeing that as a different thing than someone, something else being, being driving me to Jesus, but being drawn to him for who he is, is the reason I'm following Jesus today. One of, one of my favorite images or, or paintings um, in church history, it's called Law and Gospel. It's uh, painted by Lucas Cranach, and he was a good friend of Martin Luther's. This kind of painting's not everyone's cup of tea, but I love paintings with lots of little details, so I can just like, kind of zoom in and see what all the little, piece, uh, little bits are and kind of figure it out that way. There's lots of details here. It kind of tells the whole story of the Bible from creation to fall to redemption to new creation. And it contrasts on the left side, the law with only the power to condemn with the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection on the right side, which is the power to save you. And one of my favorite details, if you zoom in on the right side, you'll see there is a solitary stream of blood from Jesus' side goes directly and hits this man square between the eyes. And, Lu and Lucas is saying that there is a stream of Jesus, an individual stream of his blood for each and every one of us. That Jesus sit here, he says that when I die, I will draw all people to myself. But sometimes when we hear this language, we forget that all includes you and me. That Jesus died to offer salvation and offer rescue to everyone, but that includes each and every individual here in this room today. If you're going to see Jesus for who he is, truly see him and know him, you have to behold the beauty that he has crucified for you. And you have to let that truth about him draw you in. But not only do we need to see that Jesus had to die and see the offense of that, and also see the beauty that Jesus, we were so precious to Jesus that he wanted to die, but those two things come together when you really get them and you finally see that, see and behold your crucified king as your example to follow. So, because not only does Jesus' death save us from our sins, but also Jesus' death shows and displays to us as his followers the pathway that we're supposed to live as his people. So in verse, in verse uh, 25, after talking about the seed falling into the ground, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So those who follow Jesus must follow him in his own lifestyle of dying to themselves to love and serve other people. And Jesus here talks about hate and love. It's important to know that when he talks about hating your life, 
He's not talking about like an absolute hatred, but he's speaking about it in terms of fundamental preference. He's saying if you have a fundamental preference for yourself over anything else, you will die. You will lose your very life that you, so, you love and you want to preserve so much. But if you have a fundamental preference for Jesus and for others, you will actually find that you will gain life because you're living life the way it's designed to be lived. Like a seed is designed to die and bear fruit. God created human beings as well to die to themselves, to love and serve other people. And Jesus shows us the, most ex- the, mo- the prime example of that. I love how Eugene Peterson, he put, how he puts it in his message, uh, paraphrase translation. He says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, whoever holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Because here's the deal, friends. Jesus says there is going to be loss, no matter what, with him or without him. If you love your life, if you fundamentally prefer your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll actually keep it for eternal life. Because there's all these things in our life that we try and love and we try and hold on to and we, and, we, and we build our life around and we plan our life around. These various things that are our idols, that are good things, that we make the ultimate thing, whether it be your job or your family or your reputation for other people or whatever you do to find fun and pleasure in life and distract yourself from life pain. We all have those things in our lives that we plan the rest of our life around and we sacrifice a lot these idols that we use to substitute God, we, d- we don't recognize that ultimately what they cost us is subservience to them, that we'll sacrifice anything else in our life for this, these things that we cling onto as our idols. And they, and they lie to us about the cost, but Jesus tells us the truth here. He tells us what following him will cost us, our very lives, but we will gain so much more. I love how Howard Thurman, who was uh, MLK's mentor, and we're going to be celebrating uh, Martin Luther King Jr. this next weekend, but his mentor, Howard Thurman, he would say that Jesus' message about self-denial and losing yourself and dying to yourself is the only way to liberation. He would say that if there's anything in your life that you can't bear to lose, especially if that's your very physical life, anyone can control you. You can be enslaved to anyone because all anyone or anything needs to do to control you is just threaten your life or threaten whatever it is that you are clinging on to. And you will do whatever this other thing wants you to do so long as you can keep this idol or this this thing that you, or even your very own life that you want to hold on to. But when you encounter God and you encounter Jesus and you die to yourself and and you know that you have an eternal life through God, that eternal life actually begins now as you have no fear and you're able to pursue justice and righteousness because you know that even your very life, everything you have is not your own and people can do whatever they want to that, but God will still be with you and bring you through it. But even though, you know, Howard Thurman says that, even us today, as we read that and as, as we are making this call and this challenge to us today, and I say I challenge myself as well, as I'm preaching this myself first, that call is scary. 
can be scary to lose and sacrifice and let go of these idols that we think are going to satisfy us for something greater. And I thought I love how Jesus himself, he identifies with us in those same fears. In verse 27, Jesus tells us that when he, after hearing this request, that the Gentiles are coming and the sign to him that his death is near, he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, it can be easy to read this uh, in, in a very confident or cavalier kind of way. Jesus is saying, you know, what shall I say? Psh, Father, save me from this hour? Of course I won't say that. But actually, as we keep reading through the story, and if you know about Jesus' final hours, that even all the way up until his arrest, as someone who is fully God and fully human, he's wrestling with this choice. He's wrestling with this desire, this human desire to avoid pain and not go to the cross, so much so that in the garden, before he's arrested, he is sweating drops of blood in anguish and in trouble over this. But also he has this desire for us to, to, to redeem his precious people, to follow God's will. And so he, he eventually chooses and, and rightly chooses because he loves us so much and wants to follow God that much to glorify God and his confidence in him to, for God to, to work through him despite the pain and suffering to bring him out on the other end. And he goes through with it. But losing our idols and, and dying to ourselves it's scary and it, because it is so costly. And it, can be easy and, and it can be easy and understandable to be afraid to die to yourself and sacrifice whatever thing that is that you're planning your life around. I love how uh, C.S. Lewis, he tells a great story explaining this concept of, of what it looks like to die to yourself and, and, and those things that we, we can be so easily tempted to grasp tightly to. He tells us about this in his book called The Great Divorce, which if you've read it, it's, uh, it's an imaginative um, a hypothetical kind of story about what would happen if, uh, you took, if a bus of souls went from hell and visited heaven for the day. Now, C.S. Lewis is not writing a theological treatise, so don't extrapolate much more from this besides he's ha have asking these hypothetical questions to kind of think about what would happen. And in his book, if you read it, all the souls that are these specter-like ghosts that are in this bus that come from hell to visit heaven for the day, all of them choose to go back to hell because their wills have become so self-preferential, so focused in on themselves that they can't bear to be in God's presence. And so they'd rather choose hell than be in heaven. There's one exception to that in his book. And so this man who goes to visit heaven and he has a little red lizard on his shoulder. And as he's walking back at the end of the day towards the bus, an angel pulls him aside and says, hey, don't you want to stay here in heaven in the new creation in God's high country? And the man says, you know, I guess, I mean, I, I kind of would like to, but I have this red lizard here. And I know the red lizard, he's talking too much. And, and I know he has to stay quiet if I can stay here, but he's not going to do it. So I'll just go back to hell with him. The angel says, you know, actually, I can, I can quiet that lizard for you if you want. The man gets excited. Oh, please, please quiet this lizard for me. But the angel says, in order for me to quiet that lizard, I have to kill it. And the man gets super disturbed. It's like, please don't. Whatever you do, don't kill that lizard. Is there some other way? Maybe I can see another doctor or someone else can give me another opinion. Please don't kill this lizard. And the lizard begins to talk in this man's ear as well, telling him, you can't live without me. If you let this angel kill me, you will die as well. 
think about all the fun we've had together. Yeah, I've not been perfect to you, but what else do you have besides me? We've had so much good together over the course of our life. The man eventually agrees, knowing that it could cost him his life. He agrees and asks the angel to kill the little red lizard. The angel reaches out and grabs it, squeezes it, it dies. As, the, as he's throwing this dead lizard to the ground, the man screams out in pain. But at the same time, his ghost's like, specter-like body starts to become solid and real. And he slowly starts to become a real physical person. And then when, when he looks at that little red lizard's corpse on the ground, it starts to come alive and transform into a mighty white stallion. And the man climbs on that horse and together they ride off into the new creation, into God's country. And C.S. Lewis in this picture is, is, is describing what it might be like for us that we have these things in our lives, that we plan our life around, that we don't think we can live without, that it would feel like death for us to let go of them. But actually when we do that, Jesus says that you find life, you find a life that far surpasses that small little thing, that sheep idol that you are holding on to. So today I want to ask you, what is your red lizard? What is the thing that you plan your life around that you wouldn't want to give up that would feel like death if you couldn't have it anymore? And what might it look like for you to see and follow Jesus that Jesus and life in him is actually better than that little red lizard, that it far surpasses it. What would it look like to trust in him today and, and let go of what you're so afraid of losing? You know, last week, Pastor Ben, when he was here visiting us, it was a treat to listen to him while I was driving back from North Dakota. Pastor Ben, when, when talking about and recalling Mary uh, anointing Jesus's, Jesus with, with oil, expensive ointment, he talked about that shows us how to spot the difference between True worship and infatuation. Remember, he said true worship is costly. It costs you something. That's how you know that, that it is real. Because if you're seeking to follow Jesus, like many in his day were, because they were just infatuated with this celebrity who could do miracles and, and have cool teachings, or if you were seeking to, to find him, like maybe I was seeking to find Kolo Ture, the soccer superstar, and infatuated with him, in the end, you're not going to meet the real Jesus, and it's not going to last. But if you sacrifice and allow your worship of him to be costly, you'll find the real thing. You'll find the real Jesus and encounter him. So today, as, as, we, as we get ready to close, I just want to tell you about some people in our church who recently, this past month, showed me what it can look like to, to follow Jesus, to follow our crucified Lord self-sacrificially and how they denied themselves to serve others. Because not only do we see ourselves, uh, or we, we, we see it in ourselves when we follow Jesus self-sacrificially, we see Jesus for more who he truly is, but also we see who Jesus truly is through the example of Jesus working through other believers and how they self-sacrificially deny themselves to follow others. So there's a couple here at our church who are kind of newer, but they have an adopted daughter. And just last month, their uh, adopted daughter's birth parents reached out to them and said, hey, uh, we're pregnant with another baby, and next week we're going to give birth, and we're still not in a great life situation, and so we wanted to know, would you adopt this other baby boy? 
Now this family has just moved here recently and the wife uh, is newer in her job so she doesn't have paid maternity leave yet. And so she would have to take off three months unpaid uh, from her job to watch this, this newborn and care for the newborn for three months. But despite that, despite the, the hard financial situation that's gonna put their family in, they immediately agree to take this other child into their family and the next week they're flying out of state to go pick up this new family, to pick up this new member of their family. And at the same time, I'm having a coffee with another couple in our church who just you know, told me over, over, over a coffee that they were in a season in their lives so they were having a little extra financial resources at this time. And they wanted to know what would it look like for them to be more generous with their church and care for other people. And so I told them about this need this other family had. And within a day after sending that email, they responded and said, we'll meet that full need. We'll pay, and so this, fam- this couple is going to be paying for this uh, adopted couple who are having had a surprise adoption. They're going to be paying for their mortgage for the next three months the entire, for the time while this family is so that they can care for this newborn baby in their family. And there are many more. You know, it, it would have been really easy for either of these couples to do something different, right? These are both pictures of what it looks like, what it can look like to self-sacrificially love others and follow Jesus, follow follow our crucified Lord. Because it would have been so easy for either couple, for the one to say, you know, like one week is too short notice. We don't have maternity leave yet. We don't have the financial resources yet. We just can't do it. We'd love to, we just really can't right now. Been so easy and understandable for the other family as well to say, you know what, like praise God, we have extra but that might not always be the case. So let's save this extra, or maybe we've been working so hard, let's go on a big vacation, or get another expensive toy for us, or at a bigger house. And both of those would have been very understandable. But instead, they both chose to trust God and to follow him in denying themselves to care for others. And they've seen this beautiful story where this, this newborn baby is gonna be raised in a family with parents who are gonna be able to have the margin to care and love for him. And that's what happens when we, when we die to self and love others. And there are many more stories like these. I just told two, but there's many more in this room today that I could have told of people in this church and people throughout, Christians throughout history doing this thing where they, they deny themselves, they choose to follow Jesus by his grace and by his power to love other people even when it costs them. Because that, that's what it means when you finally see Jesus, when you see and you behold the scandal of his cross, that Jesus had to die to save you, but also you behold the beauty of the cross, that you are so precious in his sight that he wanted to die to save you. And you see those come together and you put that into practice in your own life by embodying Jesus' cross and beholding your crucified king as your example. So let's make more stories like this this year together as a church. Let's, would you please pray with me as we close? And I'm going to be praying a prayer from Howard Thurman um, about Epiphany that we're celebrating today, commemorating, as Christians have done throughout history, the end of the Christmas season by when, uh, celebrating when Jesus revealed himself to the Magi, to Gentiles and outsiders, and that we celebrate that as well today. So hear this prayer uh, from Howard Thurman. Father, we ask you and we, we confess to you that when the song of angels is stilled and when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back in, the, in their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, 
to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. Jesus, we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.